Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Are you ready for some football? Well, Walters is, and Walters has all of the games for you all weekend long. Reservations are limited and can be found on all Walters social media channels. Walk-ins will also be available, but will be on a first-come, first-serve basis. So don't get left out and make your reservation today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the set. Now the pitch. Bell swings. Ground ball to short. Swanson has it. A second for one. Throw to first. Low throw. Gets away from Freeman. And on his way to second is Bell. And he's going to make it. The Nationals have tied the game as Thomas scores on the play. As the Braves were unable to complete the double play. Here's the set for Swero. 0-1 to Peterson. The kick and the pitch. Swing a line drive left center field. Base hit up the alley. And this game is over. Ozzie Albies crosses the plate with the winning run as Jock Peterson is mob grounding first. And Atlanta wins the ball game 7-6 in 10 innings. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, September 10th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, if the Nationals were in a pennant race, that game on Thursday night would have really held up as some game, even with the Nationals long since essentially eliminated from postseason contention. That still was quite a game. On Thursday night, a 7-6, 10-inning loss at the National League East-leading Atlanta Braves. It is a loss that does clinch officially a losing season for the Nats. They now are 58-82. and But it was a game that had, it felt like, about a 1,000 lead changes. It was a game that was very much back and forth. It was a game with a bunch of dramatic moments and intense plays. And it was actually a fun watch. And, you know, Mark, we have said this, and it continues to be the case The Nats may not be very good, and they do lose far more often than they win these days, but they are in all of these games. These games are competitive, and these games as like standalone entities are actually pretty entertaining, and this game on Thursday night was plenty entertaining. Yeah, I thought this was probably the most fun game or most entertaining game we've had here in a while. I thought more so than those wild games against the Mets, which felt more like a which team's going to find a way to lose it as opposed to which team's going to win it. And This one felt more like they were earning it. Yeah, there were some errors. A little bit here and there that kind of contributed to it. But I thought it was kind of like we're going to trade punches back and forth. And the Nats stood toe-to-toe with what I believe is ultimately going to be the NL East champions and the Braves. And I think they are the best team. And I think pretty clearly they're the best team based on what we've seen here. Doesn't mean they're a great team, but I do think they're better than the Phillies or the Mets. And I thought the Nats, you know... (laughs) under the circumstances, held their own against them. And it's, it's on the one hand, you want to be encouraged by this and say that they're hanging tough with all these teams. On the other hand, you're saying like, boy, what does it take for them just to win a game here or there? They keep putting themselves in position to do it and they can't do it. And they end up 
Al finishing the season series now against the three contenders, 5-14 and 14 against the Braves, 6-13 and 13 against the Phillies, 8-11 and 11 against the Mets. And obviously a lot of those losses are just in the last month, month and a half. So inferior to all of them, and yet those records could at least be 500, if not better, if you just flip like one or two plays a game. Yeah, the games have been close, which I know can be loser talk, but I think that is worth mentioning that the Nats are in the bulk of these games. Certainly, we're in this game on Thursday night, Nats scoring two runs in the top of the first, exactly one run in each inning from the sixth inning through the ninth inning. The Braves scored exactly one run in each inning from the third inning through the sixth inning, two runs in the bottom of the eighth, a run in the bottom of the tenth. The two teams combined for six home runs, including five by the Braves. Every homer in the game ends up being a solo homer, and it ends up being the case again that the Nationals hit. The Nationals don't pitch well, and they did not pitch well in this game on Thursday night, but the Nationals continue to hit. The Nationals continue to produce offense. And so, you know, because the outcome doesn't matter as much as some of the individual performances, I thought we could just highlight some of the guys who did some of the things. And how about our guy, Luis Garcia? What a game that Luis Garcia had. If the Nats win this game, I feel like this game goes down as the Luis Garcia game. He was like everywhere, especially as the game went on. I would like to know, I got to look this up, what his batting average is, what his on-base percentage is, what he's doing, because in the later innings of games, it feels like he has all of his hits, like all of his extra base hits, especially like these doubles he's been hitting. They all seem to come like six inning or later. And sure enough, on Thursday night, Luis Garcia goes two for five and the two, a big solo homer and a double and each one coming in the later innings. Garcia in the Nats one run seventh, the first pitch leadoff double to right field. Garcia in the top of the eighth, a two out go ahead solo homer to dead center. Here's the pitch to Garcia, swung on and driven to deep center field. Peterson going back, way back, going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Way back and over the center field wall. A tremendous home run by Luis Garcia. For a 5-4 Nats lead, it felt like that was going to prove to be the play of the game. That was some home run by Luis Garcia, the homer going a projected 448 feet per stat cast. And then Luis Garcia with two standout defensive plays as the game went on. Terrific defensive play for the final out in the bottom of the seventh. Thompson ready. Here's the pitch. Swinging a ground ball. To flex off the pitcher's glove toward Garcia. He shovels with his glove to Zimmerman to get the out. Luis Garcia saves the day. Yeah, the bases loaded. Two outs. Game tied at four. Garcia comes charging in on a Jorge Soler grounder that deflected off Mason Thompson. And Garcia scoops up and tosses the baseball with his glove to Josh Bell for the put out at first base. I mean, you know, a classic web gem play. And then Garcia made the uh, Willie May style catch, the overhead basket catch in shallow right center on a fly out by uh, Orlando Arcia as he was pinch hitting this for the second out in the bottom of the ninth inning with the game tied at six. Luis Garcia was clutch on Thursday night and he was all over the place as that game went on. Yeah. So, all right. I just looked it up while you were talking there. From the seventh inning on, Luis Garcia is only hitting 226, 12 for 53. But five doubles, a triple, and two homers. So that is most of his extra base hits have come late in games. I think that's a good point that he's done that. And I agree. I mean, I was all set to kind of write a Luis Garcia story if they won this game. Ultimately, they didn't. But we've talked about the flash that he brings. And you saw in several moments in rapid succession there what he can do. The home run, oh my God, 443 feet. And he stood there and he enjoyed it. And hey, no fault with that. He wasn't showing anybody up. But I mean, he enjoyed that home run, first of all. 
And the defensive plays, okay, I was curious. I asked him the question, and I was curious his answer, and I'm, I'm glad he answered how he did because I was thinking the same thing in the moment. I said, which of the two, the back-to-back crazy plays, the 3-2-4 double play? Infield in for the Nationals. The pitch. Rosario grounds one to first. Zimmerman has it. He comes home. They get the force out there. Return throw to first with Garcia covering for a double play. Or the flip play on the 1-4-3 that he did to end the inning. Which was he more impressed with and more proud of? And he actually said it was the first one because he had the presence of mind to get all the way over there and cover first base on a ball that wasn't hit to him. He was proud of himself for anticipating that play. If he doesn't react immediately off the bat, there is no play at first to end the double play, and that doesn't end up being nearly as impressive of a play. So I like that from him that he was thinking in those same terms. It's not always just the great athleticism like he showed on the flip play or the -the over-the-shoulder basket catch, but it's also the awareness in the moment to cover first, you know, when you're the second baseman on a play, you might not normally even be thinking in those terms. But that was really good stuff from him. And for a guy who started off pretty slowly and had some kind of sloppiness we've seen since he's come up, I'm seeing more from him here lately. He's not a finished product at all, but I am definitely seeing more that makes you think, okay, there is something there. And it may just be a matter of him getting the experience and growing up a little bit. And he's going to become a, a decent player. Luis Garcia, last eight games, 11 for 32 with a homer, a triple, six doubles, and three singles. The Nats had two different players who each got on base four times in this game on Thursday night. Again, the Nats are hitting right now. Lane Thomas off his uh, mini slump of like, what, two games, whatever the heck it was. He gets on base four times on Thursday night, goes two for three with a triple, an RBI single, and two walks. Two run first, he draws a leadoff six-pitch walk despite having been down to the count at 1.02. Top of the fifth, he draws a two-out five-pitch walk. Top of the seventh, a one-out first-pitch game-tying RBI single through the left side of the infield to tie the game at four. And then in the Nats, one run ninth, a leadoff first-pitch triple to dead center field on a ball on which the Braves center fielder Jack Peterson failed to make a leaping backhanded catch on the warning track. Not an easy play, but a makeable play. I think I said this on a recent installment of the podcast. Most triples are like this, where it's a play that maybe could have been made by the outfielder, but ends up not being made. But anyway, Lane Thomas gets credit for the triple. The triple coming, by the way, on the first pitch thrown by Braves closer, Will Smith. Golly gee, you hated to see that happen to Will Smith. But another Lane Thomas-like game on Thursday night. The guy was everywhere offensively, getting on base like crazy. And obviously, that was a big triple that he hit in that ninth inning. He crushed that one. I thought for a moment watching it, it was going to actually clear the fence. Didn't quite get there. Hit it to about the deepest part of the park. But the um, RBI single in the seventh was really big to score Garcia after the double. Leadoff walked, opened the game and scored the run. And I want to go back to the seventh. And I'm curious what your perspective on this one was. The play at the plate on the bizarre comebacker that Tyler Matzik kicks essentially to himself is able to then flip to the plate for the force out. Base is loaded, one out. The set, the kick, and the pitch. Swing and a ground ball off the foot of the pitcher, deflects in front of the plate. He shovels home, and out is the call. What a break for the Braves. Thomas's slide on that. It was hard to tell for sure, but it looked like he didn't actually touch the plate with his feet. It was with his hand because he's trying to avoid the catcher. And what I actually wound up wondering, and I'm not faulting him for it because in the moment, that's a hard thing to ask somebody to do. But that might have been a case where running straight through the plate was actually the better move than sliding because it's a force out. 
you're not worried about a tag. You're just trying to get there before the ball is caught, almost like it was first base instead of the plate. It's a lot to ask of someone in that spot, but I almost wonder if that would have been better and he might have scored if he had done that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It would have. I just think it like goes against every instinct that you have when you're going home. And I think especially with Lane Thomas, who's had some issues on the base paths, he's probably one of the last guys who's going to think to do that in that spot. But that's true. Like At home plate, there are times when you shouldn't slide. It's just like it's so ingrained in all of us to slide that, uh, you know, I, I guess I can't really kill him for that. But yeah, Lane Thomas was all over the place. And your Lane Thomas numbers, I mean, they continue to really just stand out to you. It's 97 plate appearances now for Lane Thomas at the major league level with the Nats. I mean, that's not a microscopic sample size anymore. I mean, it's, you know, it's not all telling, but it's not nothing either. Batting average of 313, on base percentage of 402, slugging percentage of 530. Juan Soto got on base four times on Thursday night, two for three with an RBI single, another single, and two intentional walks, infield single. He was down in that count at one point, one, two. It was kind of an odd play. The baseball was hit up the middle, hit pretty well, but then got deadened. I guess it hit off the foot of the Braves starting pitcher, who Oscar Reno. It was kind of hard to tell. One run six, he has a leadoff full count single. And then he had the two intentional walks, one coming with one out in the top of the seventh, one coming with one out in that Nats one run ninth with Will Smith pitching. We did not get the Will Smith, Juan Soto confrontation. But Juan Soto now has crossed into that 450 plus on base percentage territory. His major league leading on base percentage gets to 452 and his major league leading walks total up to 116 on the year. And it's not going to go down, I don't think. I mean, let's be honest, it's just going to keep going up both because of how he's being pitched and how he's hitting. It's not all walks. You know, he is hitting quite well when he does get a chance and making the most of it. And I mean, boy, you can tell, I mean, that was the intentional walk of him. I get why they did it, but you're putting the go-ahead run on base in the top of the ninth inning. And that is kind of an unconventional move. Remember, Davey Martinez did it with Max Muncy in the playoffs in in LA, where it was a walk-off situation. And he intentionally walked him. and And then Daniel Hudson wound up walking Will Smith, I think, on four pitches to load the bases, giving everybody a heart attack before he closed out the game, striking out Seager, if I remember right. It's unconventional, but that's the respect that Soto has right now, is that if first base is open, even if he would be, the in theory, the winning run, they're not going to let you beat him. And of course, given the history with Will Smith, you knew they just weren't going to let that happen, which was unfortunate. That would have been some great drama if they actually faced off against each other with the game on the line. He also had the wild play in that top of the ninth inning. So Josh Bell, top of the ninth, a one-out grounder that results in a force out on which Lane Thomas scores the game-tying run to tie the game at six. And this was a play that had all kinds of things going on. So Bell ends up sliding head first into first base, which is something you rarely see, with the first baseman, Freddie Freeman, failing to catch a bad throw from the Braves' second baseman, Ozzie Albies, who was charged with a throwing error, but perhaps causing the bad throw. And it's, it's hard to know this with certainty, but was Juan Soto's slide into second base. You know, that may have been like a sneaky strategic slide by Soto, throwing off Albies enough to where his throw was off. Freeman, I thought, could have caught the baseball, didn't. Josh Bell is hustling like a maniac, slides at first into first, and the Nats end up avoiding the double play there and uh, end up getting that game-tying run in that top of the ninth inning. Again, this was a wild game on Thursday night. I don't know if slide is the right word for what Josh Bell did there. (laughs) (laughs) Fall, flop. Yeah, I'm not sure what. I mean, I thought I actually for a brief second thought that maybe he tripped and like was like stumbling just to get the first base at the end. No, but he did actually attempt to do that to avoid the tag and make it a close play. But 
Yeah, you're right. What a crazy game. I mean, that was this close to being the game ending double play. And instead they tie it. And now they're in a golden position to try to win it and then can't do that. And, you know, I come back to you talk about how good the offense has been. And and yes, it has been. That's not really the reason that they've lost these games. And yet they're always like one hit short of finishing the deal, except for that one game against the Mets over the weekend where they did it. They're always that one more hit away from doing it and they can't. And it's really noticeable in extra innings. I mean, they will battle like crazy against top relievers and closers in the eighth and the ninth to tie a game. But as soon as you get to the 10th and you're putting the go-ahead run on second base, just handing it to them, it becomes the toughest challenge in the world for these guys for some reason. I don't know why that is. Maybe they're letting that get to them in that moment. But their record in extra inning games have been awful. And part of that is just not being able to manufacture that run that's being given to you standing out there 180 feet away. Yeah, so the Nets now 2-6 and six in extra inning games this season. I brought this up recently. Like, the Dodgers are really bad in extra inning games this season, too. 4-12 and 12 is LA. So I don't know how much it means, but it is true. The Nets have not done well in extra inning games this season. And there is that feeling when the Nets get to extras. It's kind of like that thing in basketball of when a team rallies from a big deficit and you expend all that energy to tie the game, and then with the game tied, you just kind of wilter because it's like you don't have anything left. It almost feels like that happens with the Nationals when they get to extra inning games. Inevitably, they have to rally because the pitching isn't good, and then they're like just out of juice, even though they begin that 10th inning with a guy on second base. Like, it's not that hard to score the runner, but they seem to have a hard time doing it. Watching the game, I did very much have the feeling once it got to extras, the Nats are not winning this game. I did not have a lot of faith that that was going to happen on Thursday night. Yeah, I think a lot of people have felt that way because of what you just said, that they, for whatever reason, just seem to wilt in those scenarios and can't get the runner home, just can't get a ball to the outfield when they need it, can't advance them, anything like that. And then also, I think it's a product of the bullpen, of course. You're using up probably your best relievers often just to get to the extras, and then you don't have anybody left. Although in this game, they barely had anybody to begin with. I know we'll get to that, but this bullpen was severely depleted. And you do wonder if they had their usual guys, or at least their best guys available to them, if it might have actually been a different outcome. Yeah, and I think part of it too is the Nats don't get that necessary hit because in part they need all these hits because the pitching isn't very good. Like you shouldn't have to score six, seven, eight runs a game to win. And it feels like the Nats have to do that because of the state of the pitching. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. 
referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. Betty rocks, kicks, and deals. Swing and a high drive, deep right center field. Way back, Thomas looking up, going, going, and gone goodbye. Stephen Vogt has done it again. His second home run of the game, his second as a Brave, and his seventh home run this year. Eric Fetty was the national starting pitcher on Thursday night. He was better, but he still wasn't good. I mean, he gives up four runs in six innings. So, I mean, it's hard to sugarcoat this that much, but he was better than what he did in that last outing. So Eric Fetty on Thursday night, four runs, six innings, only gives up five hits, and he has seven strikeouts versus no walks, and he throws a ton of strikes, 70 strikes versus 38 balls on 108 pitches. The problem was all five of the hits that he gave up were extra base hits, three home runs and two doubles. Gives up a run in the bottom of the third, a one-out solo homer by Stephen Vogt. Gives up a run in the bottom of the fourth on a one-out full-count double by Freddie Freeman, followed by a one-out game-tying RBI double by Austin Riley on a 1-2 pitch. Gives up a run in the bottom of the fifth on a one-out full-count solo homer by Stephen Vogt, who strikes again, puts the Braves up 3-2. And then Fetty gives up a run in the bottom of the sixth, a first-pitch leadoff homer by Jorge Soler. So, you know, he did the Max Scherzer slash Josiah Gray thing of giving up a bunch of solo shots. There are worse things that you can do, but ultimately, the run prevention wasn't very good. Four runs in six innings, and while the, some of the peripherals were, like I said, seven strikeouts, no walks, throws a bunch of strikes, and it's still not good enough. You know, four runs in six innings is nothing to celebrate, and the Nationals end up, like I said, having to score a bunch of runs to be competitive in this game. Yeah, so what? You don't get beat by solo homers, right? That's what Max Scherzer said. Well, they yeah, gave right. five solo homers in this game, and they got beat, and that had a big thing to do with it. Yeah. As far as Fetty goes, it's a really weird outing because, like you said, all five hits for extra bases didn't walk anybody. So literally the only five batters he put on base in six innings, all were on extra base hits and four of them scored. You know, it's not like he was ever pitching in a jam. It was just he gave up really big hits. And I thought it was telling Davey Martinez afterwards spoke about as harshly as he ever will about one of his guys and one of his pitchers. He was not happy with the pitch selection by Fetty. More mental mistakes, you know. Um, you know, we go over a game plan, and he just decides he's going to just throw a fastball when he shouldn't, and it gets hit a long way. And not just throw a fastball. You want to throw a fastball, can't throw it down the middle. And throwing bad fastballs right over the plate that were hit really hard. So there was some frustration coming out from Davey that we don't normally see, at least not in public. And I think like a lot of fans, and, and like us who've been watching him all year long, we're saying, we know Fetty is better than this, and he just can't do it. He just can't avoid those critical mistakes that turn what could have been a really quality start. That could have been a six innings, two or three runs, no walks, six strikeout, good quality start. And instead, it ends up as a, like you said, four runs in six innings. He's not the reason they lost the game, but he is the reason that the game was still as competitive and, and required everything that happened after it. He now has an ERA, Fetty does, of 657 over his last 13 starts. Okay, 657 over the last 13 starts. His ERA for the season over 24 starts 
is 531. It has been frustrating to watch his season spiral downward as it has. Remember, first 10 starts of the season, Fetty and ERA of 333. With Davey having spoken as he spoke after the game, I know the Nationals are so lacking in organizational pitching depth. Fetty is under team control for years to come here. Do you think it's possible they non-tender him? Or do you think because the Nats are so lacking in pitching depth, there's almost no chance that he's not back for next season in some form, either as a starter or as a reliever? Yeah, um, I could potentially see it happening if they knew for a fact that Strasburg was good to go next year and they knew Joe Ross was good to go next year. But I don't know if they're going to know that at that point. I mean, non-tender is like in December, I think, or November 30th, something like that. So they're probably not going to know. So they may have to proceed with it. Now, maybe Fetty could be one of those guys who's in danger of losing his job in spring training. If everybody else looks healthy, you can make that move. And sometimes you don't have to pay the guy his full salary, depending on what the, the structure of that is. So that's possible. I mean, I think there's pretty clearly some frustration there. And I'm sure there are some who are looking at it and saying, is this just who he is? You know, is he not going to be better than this? But like we've talked about between him and Ross and Voth, it just feels like we're going around in circles with them. And they always do just enough to make you think there's more there, but never enough to make you think, okay, they finally turned the corner. And you could say it for all three of them. Obviously, Joe Ross is hurt now, so that's part of his scenario. But with Fetty and Voth now in the bullpen, I feel like it's the same thing over and over. And are we waiting for something to happen? And if so, is it ever actually going to happen? I can't do this again next spring training of <laughs> Ross versus Fetty versus Voth. I cannot do that, okay? We've got to have something different. This cannot be this three-way battle for like the umpteenth year in a row. Mike Rizzo has got to do something different for that back end of the starting rotation. I would think, though, if you're the Nationals, there is this fear of we cut ties with Fetty, he goes somewhere else, he figures it out, and he makes us look awful. And they would look awful. If Fetty went somewhere else, after all these years with the Nats having never truly blossomed, and he blossoms somewhere else, could you imagine the egg on the face of the Nationals organization? So I could see that working in Fetty's favor, maybe as much as anything of, geez, if, if someone, like if the Rays, let's say Tampa Bay got its hands on Fetty and, you know, went to, went to work in the lab to figure out, to dissect what's going on with Eric Fetty. And the Rays solved the Eric Fetty puzzle. I mean, how would that look for the Nationals? So I think there may be a little bit of fear in that regard too. Yeah, you're right. And a lot of times these moves are made or they're not made because they wait until they've exhausted all other options. And we've seen it happen with plenty of their players over the years where they wait and wait and wait and hope that they pan out. And then once it gets to a point, they realize, nope, it's not going to happen. And we have alternatives. And maybe the guy's getting to be too expensive for us to wait any longer. They make the move. But it would especially look bad if they cut him. He blossoms somewhere else. And it turns out that they are lacking in pitching depth because Strasburg is hurt and Ross is hurt and Corbin is awful. And, you know, they're still starting Sean Nolan in games again next year. That's where it looks really bad is if that happens. So you're right. Given all that, they may not feel like they can afford at this point to cut ties with any of those guys. Yeah, and realistically, while well, the Nationals almost certainly are going to get to work on their pitching depth problem this offseason, you're not going to solve it all. Like You're not just going to all of a sudden have an abundance of pitching riches come next year. Like This is just going to take some time for them to rebuild this organization from a pitching depth, from an organizational depth standpoint. So with the Nats bullpen on Thursday night, like Mark said, Davey Martinez was handcuffed and then some in terms of options because of what went down with Sean Nolan and Freddie Freeman in the previous game and the bullpen being so heavily worked 
in that game. Ultimately, three Nats relievers are utilized on Thursday night. They combined to allow three runs, two earned, three and two-thirds innings. The three guys, Sam Clay, Mason Thompson, and Wander Suero. And I thought Mason Thompson's outing in particular was like just the perfect epitome of actually Mason Thompson himself so far, but also this Nats bullpen, where in one inning, he was spectacular. And in the other inning, he was a mess. Mason Thompson gives up two runs in two innings. So in the bottom of the seventh, he is excellent. He comes into the game and he puts out a fire to end all fires. He comes into the game in the bottom of the seventh with the bases loaded, nobody out, the game tied at four, and Mason Thompson ends up not allowing anybody to score. He somehow induced a 3-2-4 double play off the bat of pinch hitter Eddie Rosario, then issues a two-out intentional walk of Ozzy Albies, and then gets Jorge Soler on an inning-ending ground out. But then comes Thompson in the bottom of the eighth inning, giving up two runs on a game-tying leadoff homer by Freddie Freeman on a bomb to right field, 429 feet per stat cast, and a one-out go-ahead solo homer by Adam Duvall to left field for a 6-5 Braves lead. So you saw some greatness from Mason Thompson, and then you saw him give up two home runs in the next inning. And I feel like that's kind of the Nats bullpen. At times, it looks so good. And at times, it doesn't look very good. And I think Mason Thompson kind of fits that description. At times, he looks great. And at times, he looks like a young reliever who's lacking in experience. Yeah. And it's hard, especially for young guys, to have that consistency. That's what separates the good ones from the bad ones. And when you consistently have to ask for that much from them, both in how many relievers you use, and in this case, how many innings you have to ask of them, you're running the risk of uh, of something bad happening. You're spinning the wheel and you can't always land on the right spot. You know, eventually it's going to hit the wrong one. And Thompson was a guy who did pitch on Wednesday. He was one of the six, although it was only 11 pitches. So that made him available. But let's point out here that there were several guys who were not available because they were needed for excess work after Sean Nolan was ejected on Wednesday. We kind of predicted this might happen. More troubling was that he said, Alberto Baldonado was not available, even though he hasn't pitched in two days. I'm not sure what exactly that's about, maybe feeling something, and they uh, have to confront that. So that was disturbing. But the fact that Thompson had to go multiple innings, the fact that Wander Suero had to go multiple innings, that's a direct reflection of what happened on Wednesday night. And when you do what they did, this is now what you subject yourself to, at least the potential for it. And when you have an inexperienced bullpen, you're asking for things to go haywire like that. Now, the escape of the base load jam, that was as good of a escape job as I've seen since Ryan Matthews in the 2012 NLDS in St. Louis when he got three outs on two pitches, if I remember right. A double play and an out on the first pitch. Gets jammed and a ground ball to third base. Zimmerman over to second for one and a double play. And the Washington Nationals get out of it. Cardinals have the bases loaded. Nobody out trying to add to a two-to-one lead. And they don't score. Like one of the all-time great escape acts in a playoff game. This wasn't quite there. It was four pitches. But he did a great job to get out of that. But sometimes it's hard. You have an emotional moment like that and get out of a jam. And now you go sit on the bench and you've got to come back out again and do it another inning against some really good hitters. It's sometimes hard to maintain that, especially for someone who hasn't been in this position very often. Yeah, and we know the Braves can hit, and man, baseballs were flying out of that ballpark on Thursday night. Every time you raised your eyes up to put your eyes back on the screen, somebody was hitting a home run, and it was crazy the way that that game was going. So I did want to get your take on this. You mentioned Davey Martinez not being pleased with Eric Fetty's pitch selection, and that may well have simply been an indictment of Fetty, but 
The Nats starting catcher on Thursday night was Kbert Ruiz. He went 0 for 5. Kbert is 3 for 28 with three singles and two walks for the Nats at the major league level. I'm not trying to do the conversation of, you know, is this guy a bust or like, where are we now with Kbert Ruiz? But he's off to a bad start here with the Nationals at the major league level. And Davey brings up this pitch selection thing with Fetty, which again, maybe it's all about Fetty, but I wonder if that maybe is not in some part some criticism of the catcher. What do you think right now? Where are we right now with Kbert Ruiz in terms of how things are going for him in this initial month or so with the Nats? I'd say the word I want to use here is underwhelming. You know, now that doesn't mean it can't get better, but there's been very little so far where you could watch him and say, oh, okay, I see what all the the hype is about, both at the plate and behind the plate. Now, it's a very small sample. Obviously, the minor league performances suggest that he is going to be good in all facets of the game, but it's also a lot to ask of a rookie catcher in this spot, especially one who prides himself as being a good hitter. You've got to devote half your time to your offensive game and half the time to the defensive game. He's learning a whole pitching staff, learning how to face big league hitters for the first time. And, you know, that may be part of this. Now, the sense I got was that Davey was more frustrated with Fetty. Now, maybe Ruiz is calling for those pitches, but Fetty, as a guy who's been around, needs to be better at then shaking him off and understanding what should be thrown instead. I don't know exactly. I have to go back and rewatch, like, to see, did he was he shaking him off? Was he taking whatever signs Ruiz was giving him. I'm not entirely sure. But I don't think that Davey would put that on a young catcher at this point, given his inexperience. I think he would hope that a semi-veteran starting pitcher like Eric Fetty would be able to take control of those situations and throw the pitches that he is confident in and knows is what's supposed to be thrown. As so often you hear people in baseball say, the catcher is just suggesting a pitch. Ultimately, the pitcher decides what he's going to throw. You don't have to throw whatever the catcher wants. You have to know what you're comfortable with, what you're feeling on that particular night, and what the situation calls for. And if you don't like what the catcher puts down, you shake him off and you get to what you want to throw. And I think he was probably looking for that from Fetty tonight. Yeah, and I think it's especially challenging with this situation because you have all these young catchers with the Nats and they're working with a pitching staff that, you know, isn't very good. And it's there's an experience with the staff. You know, you have uncertainty with the staff, you know, with a guy like, say, Corbin, who's really struggling this season. So it's a bad combination. Young, inexperienced catchers with starting pitchers who are not in a good place, and you're going to probably get some rough games in that regard. I think with Ruiz, you absolutely need to play him the rest of the season because you have to trust in what he is and trust in the potential and trust in the talent. But, you know, I think come next season, I think there needs to be an open mind to someone like O'Reilly Adams just of, hey, if this continues with K-Baird and Riley Adams continues to hit, you know, maybe we need to rethink some things. I mean, we're not seeing much of Riley Adams right now. You know, he's coming off the bench a little bit here and there, but like otherwise, a guy who was really hitting well is kind of disappeared. And I get it. I'm, I, you know, I don't think the Nats should be doing this in another way, but it does stand out. Like eventually you'd like to see K-Baird get a few hits, you know, to, to do a few things. And he's really not doing anything offensively so far at the major league level for the Nats. The striking thing to me is he's popping a lot up. Yeah. Now, you could say that's maybe better than hitting a lot of ground balls. He's not swinging and missing very much. That's good. And we know that his best skill is his contact. And if he's popping it up, that just kind of means that his timing's a little off, that maybe he's a little late on them. And Davey talked about wanting him to get set a little bit earlier, get out in front of the ball a little bit. So this may be one of those that as soon as he connects for one and hits a ball solid to the gaps or whatever, that it's going to click and all of a sudden he's going to take off. I wouldn't be shocked that was the case. So 
The numbers aren't great, but I'm guessing that he's closer than it seems. He doesn't look lost up there. He's just not getting the results. And yeah, you keep playing him absolutely as much as possible. But I agree, at this point, you aren't saying like, oh, he is clearly the number one catcher next year. He still needs to actually earn something there. And it's possible he needs more time in the minors. That's not the worst thing in the world. We've seen it happen with others. Wouldn't be the end of the world if that was true. And Riley Adams, in the limited sample we've seen from him, has shown that he deserves to be looked at and considered for the job as well. So I hope that it's not internally written in stone. Yes, on reputation, Ruiz looks like he should be the guy. But you do actually need to see some evidence of it. And I hope they don't just hand it to him without him actually performing here at some point. Yeah, we've seen this in sports many times over the years. You have two guys for one spot, and the chosen one ends up not being the one. And the guy who was never supposed to be the one ends up being the one. It's happened with the Washington football team at quarterback, like with Kirk Cousins, RG3. It's happened. You know, you think about like the Mets rotation. Jacob DeGrom was not supposed to be the ace. Matt Harvey was the ace. Thor, Noah Syndergaard, with his big muscles and his long flowing hair, was supposed to be the ace. DeGrom was not supposed to be the ace, and yet he has lapped those guys by miles as the ace. Like, sports have a funny way of playing out, so who knows? Maybe Riley Adams ends up becoming the Nationals' number one catcher for years to come. But we are a ways away from that. Keep Kabert out there and see what he ends up doing. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from Kevin regarding the Nationals pitching moving forward. He says, suppose you take guys like Paolo Espino, Josh Rogers, and Sean Nolan and make them a relief rotation. Their job is to come in right after the starter and pretty much plan to face the entire opposition's lineup once. He says, of course, this could be adjusted by having someone else get them out of a jam in an inning or if the pitcher spot is coming up soon. They could expect to pitch every three days and throw somewhere between 40 to 50 pitches. If you had them, your five starters, and four quote-unquote standard relievers, you'd have a 12-man staff. 
you'd get more innings out of guys you trust and have fewer cases in which you're throwing your last arms out there in the 10th inning where they'll give up eight runs like they have every night this month. So basically, he's advocating for like a three-part pitching staff. Your starters, this sort of relief rotation of guys like Espino, Rogers, and Nolan, and then your quote-unquote normal relievers. Some teams function this way without kind of calling it what uh, Kevin outlines in the email, but I think it kind of speaks to something of the Nats are probably going to have to get creative with their pitching for next season, because like we said, you're not just going to fix all of this this offseason. There's going to be uncertainty going into next year. There are going to be pretty obvious holes on the pitching staff going into next year. And uh, barring a miracle, there probably will still be some pitching problems for the Nationals next season. Just asking, does Kevin work in the analytics department for the Tampa Bay Rays? <laughs> he may. That's Rays-like. Because that sounds like a Tampa Bay Rays kind of solution to the problem. I'm not saying it's crazy, but it would be a complete departure from the way that they've done things around here for a while and not the kind of thing you just do overnight. You kind of have to have an overarching pitching philosophy and overhaul of the way that you do things if that's how you're going to go. I think their preference is to develop starting pitchers who can give you six innings consistently and then, you know, go with a more traditional bullpen setup. So, you know, to do these kinds of things, and I've heard it from others, you hear all these kind of scenarios, it only works if you have a lot of pitching depth. And that's not just the major league level, but at the minor league level, because when you use guys as much as that and in roles that are different from the traditional, you do end up often having either injuries or guys building up their workload so much that you need to be able to call up pitchers to take over when you're asking for that kind of bulk work out of them. So you need not just 12, but you need like 20 guys who you can use over the course of a season to do that. And I don't think the Nationals are at the moment in a position to do that. Tampa Bay has been great at building a staff along those lines that can do that. If the Nats were to go that direction, that's a real departure and would probably have to take place over time where they were really going out of their way to try to build a staff and a system that was designed to do that. So it's not crazy, but I don't know that that's really in the short term something that they're in a position to try to do. You know, they have this thing of we're built on our starting pitching and we want to develop guys who go six innings. That sounds great. You haven't done that in years. You haven't developed anybody who goes six innings as a starting pitcher in a long time. So, like, it's great that that's your philosophy and your mantra, but you've you've had a funny way of showing it. And if the Nats are going to continue to be this team that's built on starting pitching and they don't have starting pitching, like, what exactly are we doing here? You know, it's kind of like the person who goes to the beach wearing a Speedo and weighs 400 pounds and you're like, Well, if you had a six-pack, that'd be one thing, but you're trying to be something that you're not. And it's like, if you have Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin, that's great, but you don't. So you just think of like, we're still starting pitching team, okay, but you don't have the starting pitching anymore. That's actually one of the things with this, you know, this stretch that we're in right now. I said this a while ago. It's like, this is a blank canvas, these final two months of the season. These games don't matter. You can try things. You can experiment with things. And they're not really doing that. They're kind of still trying to do things in their traditional Nationals way. And I'm just like, I just hope this isn't a wasted opportunity. Like, you can experiment here and you can, you know, see, hey, try this guy as an opener. Try this approach with the rotation for a week. Try that. And they're not open to it. They don't want to do it. That's as clear as can be. They don't want to do it, which is fine. But if you're still not developing starting pitching, well, then what are we talking about here? If like you're insistent on this traditional way of doing things and you're just not coming forward with the necessary artillery to do things in that traditional way. Well, I would say that their hope would be, and that doesn't mean this is going to actually come to fruition, but their hope would be Cavalli, Gray, 
a healthy Strasburg and a reinvigorated Patrick Corbin. Okay. Now, again, I have no idea if that's actually going to work out, but that seems to me to be in their mind what their best case scenario is for 2022. And until they come to realize that that's not going to work, I think that's what they're going to try to do. Yeah, I mean, I hope tomorrow morning that when I open my door, it's raining $100 bills, but I'm not counting on that. So if you want to count on Strasburg off TOS surgery and Patrick Corbin off back-to-back horrible seasons to be mainstays in your rotation next year, knock yourself out. I hope that's the case. I'd love for that to be the case, but I don't know how you can count on that. We'll see. It's a fascinating spot that the Nats are in with all this because they've had so much success with their starting pitching for years. It's all collapsed this season, and now it's like, Do you have to change the model or do you stick with that model, even though a lot right now would say you maybe need to move away from that model, especially because a lot of people tell you that's kind of an antiquated model. So we'll see what the Nats end up doing in that regard. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. We continue to welcome your voice memos. Uh, If you have a prediction for the Nationals in 2022, send it along. But we're still welcoming your World Series memories, your tales of October 2019. Uh, We've had a lot of fun playing those for you, and we have another one to play for you right now. So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with this World Series voice memo from Mike Sloan. Hey, Al and Mark. It's Mike from the DMV. A longtime fan of both of yours, dating back to your Team 980 days. I was a devotee of the Morning Blitz. I love the Friday 5 a.m. foam parties and, and of course, chin music, uh, which I think this is a more than worthy successor of. And, Mark, I've always enjoyed your guest spots on the station as well. It's great to see both of you thriving in this medium. I'm a lifelong baseball fan, uh, but I moved around a lot as a kid, and young adult and never had the chance to bond with one team. So when the Nats moved here in 05, I I swore allegiance to them from the get-go. And I've been through to that. I've been part of a season ticket group package every year since 05. And I've been to at least, oh, I don't know, 250 games at Nats Park since then. My memories of 2019, of course, begin at the beginning with that terrible start, you know, the turnaround, the baby shark, and all the good feelings of that summer. But what I also remember is how good the Braves and Dodgers and Brewers were. And going to the playoffs, uh, although it was great, it was fun, I really didn't have high expectations. My memories of the postseason really begin, though, on September 17th, before the postseason actually began, When I was in a bad bicycle accident that I suffered on my ride to work, it was bad. I fractured my collarbone, some ribs and a wrist, and I was seriously concussed. But even so, for some reason, I went to a ball game the next week, and it was at that game that I aggravated what had been a non-displaced fracture of of the collarbone into one that was displaced and needed surgery which I ended up having on October 1st, the morning of the wildcard game. So there I was. My wife picked me up from the hospital, took me home after the surgery, plopped me on the sofa where I was lying, whimpering for the rest of the day, uh, waiting for the wildcard game to start. I, I didn't take any Vicodin because I wanted to watch the game and I was worried I might fall asleep. It hurt. It hurt to sit up. 
It hurt to lay down, let alone to cheer. And and I have to tell you that I am a loud and vocal watcher of televised sporting events, especially baseball. So it was hard. For me, I have to say the most miraculous moment in sports I ever watched live on TV was Kirk Gibson's home run in Game 1 of the 88 World Series. And I wasn't even a Dodgers fan. So I have to say, that made... I said Juan Soto's single against Josh Hader in the eighth inning of that wild card game was bigger than the Gibson home run, at least for me. And and even though I was lying just hours after surgery, lying in Mama Sofa hours after surgery, I just erupted after Soto made that hit. And I was in so much pain, but I kept shouting and dancing around. And man, was I in pain, but man, was I happy. And I'd say that's pretty much how the whole month of October went, October 2019. I would watch baseball in the evening. I would sleep late the next day, wake up, work a little bit, eat lunch, (laughs) take a nap, and then settle on the couch for the next game. I was too concussed and beat up, really, to do much of anything else. Um, I couldn't go to any of the games of the Dodgers series. Um, I think I made it to one of the Cardinals games, and I did suffer through uh, one of the World Series home losses at Nats Park. But but mostly, I just I just took it all in, um, recuperating on my sofa, and I, that's where I was when when Howie went clang to wrap up the World Series. And I swear to you, I have spent the last two years going clang when anything good happens. So. Those are some memories of 2019 and, and before. Sorry for take going on so long. And thanks, guys, for what you do. And let's go, Nats. Left-hander to that stutter and finally stop. Cross-fire delivery. The kick in the pitch. Inside, he hit him with it. And Taylor took one. He doesn't wear any protective armor. He'll go down to first base. That had to hurt. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.